Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alice. Hey, Reza- now. Greg, what are you doing here? Hey, what do you mean? What I- Allison, where did you, you come from, Greg? I came from the world of childish, and I just want to make sure that your listeners know that you're just as wonderful on the, on the other podcast you do. What if they don't have kids? Don't need them. You don't need them. A lot of our listeners actually tell us they don't have kids. We talk about sex. We talk about all sorts of dirty stuff, but also parenting stuff. Yeah, so. Check out Childish, new episodes every Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to a very exciting episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. My guest today is Ben Sheehan. He is the author of OMG WTF. Does the constitution actually say that a non-boring guide to how our democracy is supposed to work? He is also a former producer from Funny or Die. The Hollywood Reporter named him one of Let's, I was trying to do this from memory. Let's see if I can do it. One of the 35 rising entrepreneurs under 35. Did I get it? I mean, close enough. Executive, something like that. You're good. I, I mean, you get the idea. It's, he's important, is what I'm trying to say. And perhaps most significantly to regular listeners of Allison Rosen's New Best Friend, he is engaged to be married to Jackie Johnson and also to Chooch. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like uh, several times I will be walking around the apartment and I will think Jackie's working on her computer and then I hear her screaming and I see her that she's talking to you. So this is nice to like see the person that has been in the apartment so many times. Well, same. It's nice to see the person that she talks about living with, whose Zoom calls she ruins with her <laughs> bowel movements in the bathroom in your small apartment, which actually doesn't, it's a condo and it's not small. Uh, and I'm looking into it right now because you guys were in Delaware and you're back now, right? We were. We were there for about four months. We, we, we went with the intention of staying for three weeks and we <laughs> stayed four months as one does. And then we got back maybe two weeks ago, I think. It looks lovely, this, this condo that you guys are trying to sell. We cleaned it. I see. Well, what's it normally like? Uh, it's a little messier. There's stuff. Uh, we've crammed it all into the closet uh, behind me to my, I guess, if you're looking at it, nine o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we're just doing our best. We get notified of showings and then we have like 20 minutes to hide our things. It feels like our parents are at the lake house and then suddenly they call and they're cutting their trip short early and they're on their way home and we have to like clear out the house like we're having a party as if we were in high school and get everything put away. Uh, and then some a realtor shows up with a person to wander around for five minutes and leaves. <laughs> that sounds stressful. Um, it is. Well, I'm very excited to have you on the show. We need to tell you to get into all of it with the book and with Jackie and with everything. Um, but let's first start with the fact that you were on Good Morning America this morning at a very early time, East Coast time. What time was it for you and how did that go? It and was, where were you? Because it looked like you were on a set. I, uh, it was the interview started at 4.50 a.m., 
And I had to be there at 4.15 a.m., which means I had to leave my place at 3.45 a.m. and start getting ready at 2.45 a.m. And I was at a set in Culver City. I forget the name of it. It's like the strike or the the the... The, the, the something mm-hmm. um, it's a set it's like a remote set that a lot of news organizations use to have people you know broadcast remotely got it um, and how do you do in the middle of the night talking about the constitution um I mean, I guess I've done it enough to the point where there is some reflexive element to it, but it is hard to sleep for one hour and get up and start talking about the electoral college yeah um, okay, so your book which by the way, uh, is it's very funny. Like I really, I was, I laughed out loud at the thing about um, like just wish it. This um, this is not gonna. It's too long for me to explain. You're gonna have to explain it. But <laughs> just wishing that uh, cookbook authors would like just tell you how to make a fucking quiche. Yeah. <laughs> Which was you were explaining the basically the premise of the book is premise which is also reality uh that the constitution is like a user manual for how we are supposed to operate how we're supposed to run our government and yet and we it's a government for us by us and yet we the average american has no idea what's in it and that schools spend so much time and i'm gonna give you a chance to tell me if i got this right schools spend so much time teaching history which is like almost masturbatory because it's just the it's this like preamble that is not actually useful that was where the metaphor came in it would be like you know reading a cookbook and it's just all about like how they got the different things and da 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 like the majesty of the grain i don't think you said that but in and you're just like okay just tell me how to make a fucking quiche uh, that was a brilliant that was not only was that a great premise there were details added that uh <laughs> were even better and maybe in a future edition i can work in uh those details yeah so um you must know the Constitution inside and out. I am. I would encourage everyone to get the book. It is written like like a something between like a humor book and a textbook, but very useful. Um, very like if you are ADHD at all, there's lots of little things that are broken out, lots of bits to get to. Um, how like how did you write it? What was the process? It seems like like such a huge undertaking. It was a very large undertaking, and I basically wrote the first draft in a month. Well, I should say I wrote a treatment of it for a website. So I started an organization in 2018 called Oh My God, What the Fuck? And it's OMGWTF, and it stood for, during 2018, uh, Ohio, Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, Texas, and Florida, and those are the states that we were active in, and we supported candidates for governor, secretary of state, and attorney general. Um, we educated people on why they should care who those people are, and that's when I started to, to, to realize that a lot of people were coming to our events thinking I was talking about the U.S. Attorney General or the U.S. Secretary of State, and they didn't know that their state had those jobs. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking into civics, and I was like, wow, it's really weird that only eight states require a year of civics or government education at some point between kindergarten and 12th grade. Um, and so I wrote kind of a summary of the Constitution just on a whim, like a sentence or two about each article and amendment. I mean, really bare bones. And put it on our website. 
And then I thought, well, maybe there's something like a larger project here. And so I wrote like a really quick treatment. I mean, I don't know, 17, 18 pages, but like double space, like not, not full pages. And I had this chance meeting and then it led to this book deal and it was for four books. So one is the adult book. Another's a kid's constitution book. The other's the, the gerrymandering journal that is basically just specifically about gerrymandering. And then, um, the other is the book in Spanish which I did not translate. <laughs> and I basically wrote the first draft of the adult book in a month because they wanted to get it out with plenty of time to go to the election. Um, I basically wrote the first draft in July. I probably pulled seven all-nighters. I mean, it was it was kind of a disaster. Um, I did run it by a, a number of experts who pointed out some creative liberties I took with it that I had to, to dial back <laughs> and correct, but the final version is, uh, uh, is very accurate. Um, and it was uh, my first experience writing a book and also my first experience writing a crash book schedule, which is when you're trying to familiarized with something is so dense and opaque as as the constitution is is definitely um uh, uh, a lot of pouring over text word for word and trying to make sense of it mm-hmm. so you uh dedicated the book for my mom who taught me this stuff over dinner for my dad who taught me how to simplify um can you can you explain and basically i wanted to find out like where did your interest in and love of all this stuff come from but i'm figuring uh by asking that question we will get to that right yes so my mom spent 15 years working in the united states senate and she worked for a senator from oregon named mark hatfield and when i was about five or six years old i remember one night over dinner she took a napkin and she drew two houses on the napkin and she wrote the number 100 in one house and the number 435 in the other house and that was my first civics lesson about congress and over dinner every now and then my mom would sort of teach me about the government basically about her job and I came to sort of learn about this. And even when my dad traveled a ton and he worked with a lot of politicians too, um, coaching them on speaking and preparing them for debates and, and speeches. But he, when he was at home, the dinner table was political conversations all the time. And so I kind of just soaked it in. I thought that everyone lived in D.C. and, and grew up with like parents working in the Senate and discussing uh, the federal government and, and complaining about this person and that person. <laughs> but um, I realized how unique that was. And I was really surprised by the time I got to 12th grade, I'd only had one civics class and that was in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And I breezed through it because my parents had taught me all of this stuff. And it was only because I had the, the privilege or luck of being born in D.C., being having parents who worked this job and them taking the liberty of sharing it with me. So my early interest and familiarity purely came by, by luck and, and having parents who, who taught this to me. And what is the definition of civics? So civics is the, the rights and responsibilities of being a citizen of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's different from history, as you pointed out, which is really like the, the premise of the book is that well, as when you, we as study, you pointed out, <laughs> Well, you you sum, you summarized it quite well. Um, and what's really interesting about about civics versus history is that yeah, we are. It sort of gets shoehorned into social studies, or it gets thrown into uh, history. But it's sort of like there's like the rules and the and how things work, and then there's the story of how they came up with the rules and the amazing people that gathered in this room and came up with it. And it just it all bleeds together, and they're really different things. There's history, which is wholly separate from 
civics, they certainly are related and one leads to the other, but they are different things. And one is sort of the story of how things came to be. And the other is the blueprint for us over 200 years later to know how to operate the country. I mean, obviously, some of that is, I would imagine, just because that's how things are always done. And people are just kind of, that's how we've always done it. And these are the textbooks we buy. And well, actually, I mean, I suspect I've been out of school for a long time. But so I suspect what is being taught as history is changing a little. But the emphasis on history versus civics is obviously like, part of it is just habit. But you suspect there's something a little more nefarious, right? So I was pretty surprised to learn that in 1796, George Washington gave this whole speech, his final State of the Union, and he was like, guys, we have to teach everyone how to run the country that we just set up for them a few years ago. And it didn't end up happening, but he petitioned Congress to create a national university basically to teach everybody civics. And then fast forward about almost 200 years to the 1950s and 60s, where coming out of World War II, there was this renewed sense of pride and um, patriotism. And so civics classes were a mainstay of our public education system. And we had classes that were different classes, a wholly dedicated civics class, a U.S. history class, another American government class, a class called Foundations of Democracy. Mm. And these were common single, like, wholly their own classes in public education in the 50s and 60s, and compare that to today, where only eight states teach a year or require a year of civics or government at some point in your 13-year academic career. So we've fallen precipitously in about 60 or 70 years from where we used to be. But you think that it benefits the people in power to have it be done that way, right? Or like, do you feel like it's just laziness or do you feel like it's by design? So I think that one, I can point to the problem in the last 18 years. So in 2002, No Child Left Behind was a a federal law, but because education isn't a federal government power they can fund they could fund it they can mm-hmm. finance it but they can't like make the rules in each state about what you can learn so they offered financial incentives to schools if they excelled in reading and math and so all these schools were like well fuck we got to go teach reading and math and get really good at that so we get federal money and that continued in 2010 with common core which was a group of states signing on to an initiative and then in 2015 they updated um no child left behind called every student succeeds but all three of these laws or initiatives were all about English language arts and math over and over, mm-hmm. creating new standardized tests around them, measuring performance, using that to decide if they were even going to keep schools open. So basically, I mean, talk to you know teachers about this, and, and I have, and, and they've complained about that, is that the focus is so heavy on reading and math that other subjects kind of fall by the wayside. So that's the, the, the reason I can point to through my research that the last 18 years we've shrunk and, and kind of decimated civics. But I do find this really interesting beginning of the drop coming out of the 1960s. And what happened in the 1960s? You had the Civil Rights Movement, you had the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and the Vietnam War protests and leading to the 26th Amendment, um, protecting 18-year-olds' right to vote. And these were all directly due to citizen pressure and organizing and activism. And I find it interesting that coming out of those decades with those tangible results, I mean, four constitutional amendments in a 10-year span, and suddenly we're teaching civics less. And I do think that it benefits people in power for 
us to not know their jobs, mm-hmm. not know if they're doing a good job, not knowing their power um, because they can maintain it. The emphasis on reading and math to your mind, is that, was that like triage? Was that like, these are things that people need to know and, and they, is it, be, was education getting so bad that they had to push those to the forefront or is there some other reason? I don't know. I mean, this was under, this was one of, um, uh, under the George W. Bush administration, one of their earliest policies. And I, I do honestly think that it had good intentions to get more students educated in these subjects, but the narrow focus created this hassle where because you could have your school deemed failing, because it could be shut down if you were underperforming or consolidated with another local school or lose federal funding, it did create a stressful environment that only exacerbated over the next mm-hmm. 18 years. So I don't think there was anything to there, I think it was a byproduct of a, a well-intentioned but flawed um, initiative. So I want to get into your backstory and all of that, but I want to first ask you something that's been on my mind, and I think it's on a lot of people's mind. Um, knowing the Constitution as you do, uh, is there a way that our current president can steal the election? Um, the like, would the Does the Constitution have... Uh, have a safeguard against that or you know how would that all shake out but the story that is bandied about in my house um by my husband who is is more political than i am or yeah uh is that if biden doesn't win huge on election day and then it goes to like counting the ballots and stuff then trump will say that those are corrupt um, and then, you know, the potentially the people that he are supposed to stand by and stand, but stand down and stand by will go riot at the place where they're counting the ballots. And then, and I'm not sure how it goes from one thing to another, but then somehow it'll go to the Supreme Court where, you know, Amy, where he has, you know, got his people in there. And then uh, he will have stolen the election, even though Biden did win. Like, can this happen? So what you're describing is one of the scenarios or a lot like one of the scenarios that this um, uh, this organization put together um, through wargaming this election. Mm -hmm. So over the summer, a bunch of uh, scholars, politicians, former politician, military leaders, journalists from all sides of the political spectrum got together and basically war-gamed potential scenarios for the 2020 presidential election. And basically what they came up with was four scenarios, and the only one that was a clean transition of power was if Biden won big Mm -hmm. on election night. Unequivocal, undeniable, no contesting possible, and then a peaceful transfer of power ensued. If it was a close election, either if Biden was up a little bit or Trump was up a little bit or it was dead even, it all basically played out very badly. What I will say and what I can say with certainty is that the president doesn't have any constitutional powers to move an election. Mm -hmm. He can't change election day. He can't postpone it because of an emergency. He can't do anything like that. Election day is established by Congress in 1845. They made it the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And so that's what we've got for 175 years. Um, so the president can't do that. What is possible, however, is that the electors, the people in each state that vote directly for the president and the vice president, 
how those electors are appointed is up to each state, specifically the state legislature. And so what could happen is in certain states, there could be claims of voter fraud. There could be people saying that there were fake ballots cast or people mailed in duplicate ballots mm-hmm. or some claims of voter fraud that either led to a recount or led to a, a court case or a controversy. If there's a problem with the election for the popular vote in a single state, it's possible that the state legislature could say, hey, you know what, we can't trust the results of the popular vote, so we, the duly elected members of the state legislature of Georgia, whatever it is, uh, are going to pick the electors ourselves. And under the Constitution, they can do that. If they do it before December 8th, it counts. December 8th is is bandied, the term is is the safe harbor date. Mm -hmm. But all it means is that if they're going to pick another an alternate means of choosing electors, they got to do it by that date if it's going to count. And they would do so, it because they would say that there's too much fraudulent activity. You people are all suspect. We got to pick. I don't, I don't like that one bit. Okay, keep going. Possible. <laughs> it's possible. But the, what I have heard is that it also depends on the state constitutions. And most, if not all states, um, say that the electors either have to vote for the winner of the popular vote in the state if there are, if the state requires that the electors be faithless or that the legislature can make them vote a certain way. So from what I understand, it comes down to state laws and state constitutions in each case. And I have not yet heard of a situation where um, basically the state could do that, even though they have the power to do it under the constitution because their own laws say something different. So are you worried? I'm worried. I used to be worried about that. The more I've looked into it, I'm less worried about that. I'm more worried about violence on election day. If I'm being totally transparent with you, please do. Because there is something really scary that has happened um, recently, which is the expiration of a consent decree um, based on something that happened in 1981. So in 1981, basically right-wing militias went to the polls in New Jersey and intimidated voters, including voters of color, potential Democratic voters, Mm. um, with weapons, like, at the polls. And they were sued, and the result was that there was a consent decree that the the Republican National Committee could not organize, um, finance, encourage poll watchers uh, of anything like that nature for 35 years. Unfortunately, that expired in 2017. So this is the first presidential election since the expiration of that quote-unquote consent decree um, that the Republican Party isn't bound by that. And they have announced an initiative a few months ago to recruit 50,000 poll watchers and, and use $20 million to finance the, 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 these people watching the polls, making sure nothing quote-unquote nefarious is going on. So that's what I think you answered my my question was going to be, what is a poll watcher? So poll watchers are supposed to be like hall monitors for voting, but they're actually... So there is there is a technical use of poll watcher in the sense of like lawyers. Like sometimes nonprofits will send, like the ACLU will send a lawyer to a polling place to make sure it's running smoothly and people's constitutional rights aren't being infringed. So, you know, that would fall into the category of poll watcher. The poll watchers I'm talking about that are, you know, being reported on right. are people who aren't necessarily lawyers and just parts of like members of a militia just showing up to a polling place with guns and intimidating people um, from casting their vote through violent intimidation. That seems so illegal. It is, except that because of the Second Amendment, in certain states you can have open carry, some states you can't. So it depends on the state. But 
if you're not threatening people with anything, you're not even holding it, you just are having it in your holster and standing there, you know, you, the argument could be made that you're not intimidating anybody. Um, but, you know, it, these, these situations could go south quickly. There could be a confrontation. There could be actual violence on Election Day. And, you know, unfortunately, this country it hasn't happened in a long time, but this country does have a history of violence on Election Day. Mm. When was oh, the last time was 1981? Was there actual violence or just intimidation? I don't know if there was actual violence, but I do know that it successfully intimidated people away from the polls, which is what led to the um, the court case. I don't know if anyone was hurt, um, but you saw this in you know the Jim Crow South, and and especially in the wake of the Civil War. I mean, one uh, on uh, in the in the 1920s in in Florida, they were they were it was one of the most the, called the Ocoee Massacre. It's one of the most violent examples of Election Day. Um, uh, or I should say one of the worst examples of election day violence in U.S. history, uh, the election of 1876. Had, I mean, tons of, of elections before the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, you, you had this type of thing happening. If you receive an absentee ballot but drop it off at a polling place, do you know if that counts as early voting or like when that's counted? So different states have their own rules for absentee balloting. So like, you know, for example, um, 45 states have said that you can use COVID-19 as an excuse to vote absentee. Five states have said that you can't. Mm -hmm. One of those five states is Texas. So that's, you know, the second largest state. So that affects a lot of people. Texas, you have to be either have a a physical disability. uh, You have to be out of the state. You have to be incarcerated or you have to be over 65, Mm -hmm. 65 and over to vote absentee. Otherwise, you have to vote in person. So because the Constitution says that states run their own elections, the times, places and manner of their elections, even for representatives and senators, um, you know, elections are largely run at the state level. So we have all these different rules, like different, you know, windows for early voting, different numbers of polling places, different times that they're open, uh, you know, different rules around absentee voting or or early in-person voting. It's all dependent. Dependent on on the state, so you know my answer is it depends on which state you're talking about because they have their own their own rules. Although Congress can override those rules with a sweeping federal law, like establishing a single day, you know, across the country for the election, like the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. Right. All right. I want to tell you guys about BetterHelp, and then I want to dig into the the man behind the book. <laughs> If you think you may be depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed or anxious, BetterHelp offers licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and to help. Talk with your counselor in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp counselors have expertise in a broad range of areas, including anxiety, grief, depression, LGBT matters, family conflicts, self-esteem, and more. Uh, You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs and then get matched with your counselor in under 48 hours. Everything you share is confidential. If for any reason you're unhappy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. And I just want to underline... I just want to underline uh, how significant that is. I think right now people might, you might think, well, I don't know, starting up counseling, um, starting up therapy with someone virtually, what if I don't, what if I don't click with them? Um, You know, it feels like a commitment. It's not. You can change at any time and they will get you the right person that you feel comfortable with. BetterHelp is an affordable option and our listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code BESTFRIEND. Get started today at BetterHelp. That's better help.com slash best friend, betterhelp.com slash best friend. Talk to a therapist online and get help. 
Okay. So you grew up in the D.C. area, I take it? I was born in D.C., lived there for seven years, and then we moved to Bethesda, Maryland, which is like five minutes outside of Washington, D.C. Two people. No, one person that I went to college with and his friend, who I also know, are from Bethesda. Is it big, though? I think it's like 50,000 people. So that's actually not that big. So not like not tiny, big. but mid-sized. Right. Uh, what was your childhood like? My childhood was very athletic because I was not allowed to play video games. Oh. And I was not allowed to have a set-top video game system, so I could play computer games when I was done with homework. I could play Game Boy on travel or when I was done with my homework, Mm -hmm. but I was not allowed to play video games, Nintendo, Sega Genesis, Super Nintendo. Um, I was very upset about it. But I did learn weird, nerdy hobbies, and, and maybe even it contributed to my love of government, I guess. But um, I found other ways to preoccupy uh, my time other than playing video games. Would you do that? Like, would you, yeah, would you repeat that if you have kids? I don't know, because I feel like gaming is so much more of a part of our, our culture. I mean, it's definitely, it was definitely a huge part of popular culture growing up, and there are definitely fewer game options, but I feel like today, so there are so many games, and there are video games everywhere, and I feel like on some level, I would be depriving my kids of a much bigger part of culture, maybe, mm-hmm. than for me, and... I was, this is also pre-social media, so I, I was just spending not as much time on the computer or, you know, we didn't have phones back then. So um, it wasn't weird that I, I was annoyed. I would play video games at friends' houses, but I definitely found enough things to do and preoccupy myself with. And I also had a younger brother who was three years younger than me um, who I would, like, compete against in everything from ping pong to koosh basketball to... We got very competitive, to, honest, honestly, to a weird degree that continues to this day, but in a friendly way. Um, but I don't know if I would repeat it for my kids. Um, how does it, how does the competition manifest? And I can relate to that. I have a sister who's three years, nine months younger than I am. And just, and we are like very, we're very close. I don't think of us as very competitive. However, I have noticed now that we both have kids and I don't know if she would say this, this might just be my thing. This is between me, should, should be between me and my therapist, but I'm going to share it with all with you and the <laughs> listeners. And I also mentioned it on childish, my parenting podcast that I do. Um, I find like there's a little bit, just a little undercurrent of competition over like grandma, grandpa time with the kids. And like, it's sort of brought up this flair, a little bit of sibling rivalry now that we have like kids and we're trying to schedule time with the grandparents and just all of that. I feel like we were, so we're, yeah, my brother is not, uh, three and a half, three, three years, six months. Oh, so so almost we the same, have yeah. siblings almost the exact same age younger than us. And we, it, either it was out of boredom or competition, but we would make games where games did not exist. Like the sugar packet at the restaurant counter, like while we were waiting for food, um, what like that football trying to like slide it across almost <laughs> shuffleboard style to get it to hang off. Like that was a huge game. <laughs> we played that all the time. It was very tense. Um, we would play, like I said, koosh basketball, wiffle ball on the beach. I still play one-on-one wiffle ball against my brother. Um, baseball in the yard. When he got married three years ago, I did a toast and I, I, I named all the things we competed against. It took me a, a minute and a half to read all of them. There were like 40 <laughs> to 50 different games. Um, 
and even today when my brother and I are competing against each other, um, <laughs> Jackie's like watches it and she sees this like fire coming out in our eyes of like, you know, a game of ping pong, like, and she's like, what is wrong with you guys? <laughs> what are you doing? Um, but it taps into this thing where honestly, it's not even that I want to, to beat him, although I, I do, but <laughs> early on, like when we, the more competitive we were, the better we got when we competed against our friends and not against us. Mm-hmm. So it was almost like in a weird way, we were toughening each other up by like being a more formidable opponent to better our skills. And then whenever we would go out, cause if I was playing, you know, on my school's baseball team, my brother was rooting for me hundred percent of the way he was the biggest cheerleader and same thing for me with him like if we're not competing against each other we are our biggest champions if we are competing against each other all bets are off fuck you basically <laughs> in in the nicest way of saying that with love right but it is like i'm i'm you know it's 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 forceful well that's nice that you guys that you have that do you guys get into like actual fights though i don't mean physical fights i mean you know? No, I mean, we ha- not really. My brother's a little bit of a sore loser. And so he will sometimes walk away from the game if it's, it's look at, if it's not going well. Um, I'm certainly not immune to my own, uh, shortcomings. I mean, I was taller than him earlier, so I would use that to my advantage if we're playing one-on-one basketball. Like, it's not really fair at some point when you're like seven years old playing <laughs> against a, <laughs> four, a three-year-old, four-year-old, half-year-old, yeah. like four, eight, eight and five or whatever it is. Like, you know, there, there's a built-in advantage, but, um, I, it never got to physical fight. I mean, maybe once or twice, but not really. It just got, you know, it just heated and, and, and exchanges of words. Um, how did you feel about him getting married earlier? I feel like every single person that knows us saw that coming um, (laughs) because he, I don't know, he seemed, I've always been sort of a, a, a wandering spirit, if that makes sense. And I've never really had a set career. Like he, he works in politics. He works for the governor of Delaware. Um, and he's known that he wanted to work in politics from a very young age, like as a politician. And so he knew he, he, he worked in the city government in New York in education. He works in the state government in Delaware in education. And he's brilliant. And he knows so much about this issue and he is going to have a very long successful political career, but I didn't have the same feeling when I was younger. I started out in the music industry. I thought I was going to be like a, you know, a boring white boy singer songwriter playing love songs in coffee houses. And like, I did that for maybe six months. My parents were like, please go back to grad school. So <laughs> I did. And I worked and I studied music and business. And I, I began my, my career with all the, you know, internships and, and full-time jobs in the music industry. Mm. And then I moved in, in sort of a weird pivot to funnier die and then got into comedy. And so then I was in comedy and now I'm in this like civic education and political space. So I've had a bunch of like different careers and trajectories and changes um, either because I'm ADD or I'm just sort of like following, you know, following things or following my gut. But my brother has been sort of like, this is what I want to do. I want to have a family by this age, that sort of thing. Mm. And more kind of by the book, I guess. Right. So music was the thing that you were pursuing at the beginning. That was my, that was my dream. Uh, I did music all throughout college. When my baseball career ended, I did uh, music all throughout college and I did acapella. I did nineties cover band. I'm still in a nineties cover band. Obviously we have not been able to, to play in a while. Right. It was back in, in February, but, um, we, uh, I've just been doing music my whole, my whole life. And, um, and honestly the tiptoeing into the comedy world through music is what sort of led me to, to funny or die. Mm-hmm. Uh, where'd you go to college? I went to Emory University oh, yes. in Atlanta, 
And then I took a year off to pursue a very fleeting music career. And then I went back to school at NYU and did a, a, like a, a, mu- a joint music and business program. NYU was grad school? Yeah. Oh, so the year off was after. I see. The year off was after. Got it. And that's when your parents were like, hey. So we're what like, did you do during that, during that year off? I mean, I'll be honest with you. It wasn't the brightest time in my life. It was very, it was like driving to hair. I remember driving to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to play some music festival that I paid to submit songs to. (laughs) And I got there and I get there and I have like a 15 minute spot in between like 10 other people on the lineup. And there were maybe 10 people in the audience. (laughs) And Harrisburg isn't super close to Washington, D.C. And I was driving home at three in the morning. It was freezing. I mean, we're talking like 12 degrees outside. Mm. Um, I'm loading my guitar up by myself, driving home. I get home at like three. And as I'm pulling into Maryland, I'm like, I don't think this is for me. <laughs> it just didn't like, I also don't think I was like, I, I, I didn't, I mean, there are so many like singer songwriters. I mean, you have to be really good to break through. You have to be just like otherworldly special because, and, and I was not that. Um, I was, I was, I was very bar competent. Like you, I, you walk into a bar, I'm playing, you know, uh, uh, matchbox 20 in the corner. You're like, yeah, that's great. Like I can have beers to that. That's fine. Like a fun throwback, but no one's like, you know, jaws are on the floor. Did you write your own stuff or was it mostly covers? I did. I wrote my own stuff. Uh, I had a very, uh, in hindsight, ill-advised foray into the original music space, and I recorded an album uh, that I probably could have used that money for something a little bit more beneficial, and I toured behind that album for the, a year, and I'll just say it was a learning experience, perhaps its own stepping stone education between college and grad school, and... I think I've learned a lot about writing music since then. Okay, I'm hearing Jackie chuckling in the background. What is yeah, so funny? Yeah, she's really enjoying this because she's heard that album. What's so funny uh, about this album? Um, well, every two years or so, I revisit it out of curiosity <laughs> to see how it is. And there are parts of songs that are really nice, and then there are parts of songs that are not. Like... What do you mean? Like they're not good or like, like they're mean spirited? Like the bridges, the bridges in a bunch of the songs are like pretty fine. Like I guess I was good at writing a bridge when I was 22, but like the melodies were not good. Like extremely forgettable, not catchy, like not great song structure. The intros went on too long. Like I could have used, I could have really honed in on some songwriting craft before writing that down. But every now and then there's like a moment I'm like, oh, that's actually... That's actually not bad. What's the name of this album? Uh, it's called Soft Landing, and I'm pretty sure I've bought every copy <laughs> off of the internet <laughs> for security purposes. I need... She asked, and it's a podcast, and this is an honest space where we share. If they do, fine. Someone will be out, I don't know, $12. CD Baby will be slightly richer. Is Jackie and available to pop her head in and tell us what she thinks of this album? Jackie, are you available to pop your head in and say what you think of this album? I don't mind. I do want to be honest before Jackie shares what she's about to share. We are getting married. I love her very much. She loves me very much. We play music together. We enjoy. This is an album I recorded 13 years ago. Jackie, have at it. Hi. 
Oh, she okay, can't hear I can't me. Hear Alice. Oh, um, can I have one? Yeah, give her an earbud. Okay. Hi. Hi. Okay. So what? What do you? You look beautiful, by the way. What do you think Thank of? Thank you. I just had my eyebrows done. They look. Did you have them um, micro needled? No, I had them shaped. They look. And I'm so happy. Like, why didn't I do this earlier? Probably COVID, but they look great. Um, yes, that is definitely. <laughs> that is definitely. Okay, so uh, what what are your thoughts about soft landing? I cannot believe you told her the name. <laughs> when I found out about soft landing, I was very intrigued. And I remember Ben gave me a copy of it and I went and put it in my car and I drove home to it. And I was honestly shocked because of how bad it was. <laughs> I was so surprised. It's really bad. <laughs> Ben so much and I think he's so much better now you know what I mean like he's so much better now and oh, we're and not seeing we're not seeing it. Ben's face can you push them oh no now we now we got Ben's face <laughs> Ben's gonna be over here for the next few seconds while Jackie shares her okay face. I mean, listen if you would have given me a pen and paper and a full studio to record an album at 22 it would have been fucking horrible like you know what I mean like I hadn't lived yet. I didn't have anything to say. I didn't have a point of view. And I think Ben had listened to a lot of Jason Mraz. And I think that was really like in his psyche. And and he just, you know, it, it wasn't his best work. Um, but it's really bad. I won't lie. I'm not going to sure go. It's bad. Like, and now that you've told everybody, I know people are going to try to find it. And he has done everything he can to completely hide it and cover it and remove it from the earth. And you literally just told if you want, of people. If you want, we can bleep the title. I mean, I think people need to know. You. I, I do don't too. know. She like, disarms people. You did this. I did this because I was being honest. Thank and you. we're talking about development and yeah. we're getting to know the person behind this constitution book. And my point is, is that you got to mix some things that fail before you find something that hits. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I love you, though. And you know, I think you're so talented. He's so good. You know, his mom didn't let him play video games, but I heard because of that, he learned to play guitar and piano and can sing and can play every game like he's so good at everything that's why it's just so shocking to me that it was so bad <laughs> you know it's so bad i forget which musician said this but you have to write a bunch of shitty songs before you write a good song and i just happened to record a lot of those shitty songs in a really nice studio near Bethesda. Maryland. Honestly, this is not exactly the same. Bye, Jackie. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, Jackie. Thank this you. is not exactly the same. However, I look back on the early parts of my career and I think I had opportunities come to me that I would, I would like to have them come now because I feel like I could handle them much better. Like I was too green when I was doing, I was too green. I was too young. I just, there's a lot of stuff I that happened early where I'm like, it happened too early. And I didn't, I, I would like, I, I would have handled it differently if I had more years under my belt. Well, I feel the exact same way. And I think probably the biggest issue with that project is that I didn't know how to, I mean, I was imitating other people's voices. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm listening to people singing and I'm like em emulating their style. Right. And I, and I, on a whim, after I'd recorded the album, I went to a voice teacher and she was like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you singing like that? And I was like, what? She's like, talk. 
And she did these exercises and I started singing. I had a totally different voice. That's so interesting. And I was just like, I, and it probably is because I think at the time I was very self-conscious about myself and I wanted to sort of emulate what seemed to be successful and seemed to be reachable for me. And so that meant putting an affect on my voice that was like raspier than it is. Mm. Like I don't have a raspy voice. Like I have a pretty clear, like, you know, higher register uh, uh, voice. And I was putting on this affect. And so, because it was popular at the time. And so I think it just goes to show like, you, you spend a lot of, early years and people do this with clothes people do this with styles people it's not just you know music and singing it's so many things where you imitate other people's things and then you sort of slowly find what is unique and 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 honest and authentic to you um and it just took you know a, a rather <laughs> a long drawn out process for me to get there and so how did you start working at funny or die so i basically i'd been doing some um uh it's, it's funny because looking back, they're not great comedy songs, but they're certainly better than the, like, the serious music I was writing. Like, it was like topical comedy songs, and they were getting featured on Funny or Die, these music videos about pop culture things or politics. Um, and so I was getting these, um, the, this attention. It was like back when getting placed on like the homepage was a, a big deal mm-hmm. in like 2010 or 2009 or whatever, because you'd be like, you'd be like a video of you, like a random person from the internet, right next to Will Ferrell, right next to Zach Galifianakis. Right. And so I would get a lot of views on, on these videos and I got in contact with a few people there. And when I, I moved to LA to work at this music job that, that changed direction quickly, was working with talent and started selling instruments. It's like a long story. It's like a, 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 a startup pivot that went horribly wrong, <laughs> but I quit and I was like, I hate this and I'm going to give myself eight months to find something I really like, or I'm going to move home and work for my dad. And I made a list at the advice of one of the people that worked at the company who knew I was like super bummed. And he goes, look, take a bottle of wine, take a pen and a piece of paper. And on the left side of the paper, write down all the things you love to do. And on the right side of the paper, write down a list of companies you could potentially see yourself working at and just, and do it while you drink a bottle of wine in an evening. And so I wrote down all these things and all these companies. And the next day I looked at it and I was like, I feel like I could do most of these things at funny or die. That's, that's like, that's like the, it's a dream. And so I just started trying to meet people. I reached out on like Facebook and LinkedIn to people and I somehow got the CEO's like cell phone and cold called him. And he was like, I got five minutes. What do you want? And so wow. I just like weird sort of like stalkerish hustling stuff. But I guess I was desperate because I was like, well, I'm moving home at the end of the year. So why not give it all the yeah. shots that I have? And so I ended up getting a meeting there, running into um, uh, the head of the company at a rather precipitous, like, par- like a party. And I pitched this idea to start a music focus at the company because they were working with these amazing TV and film talent. But I come from the music world and I knew firsthand that my friends who were working with bands like, um, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know, Grizzly Bear, Macklemore, Ryan Lewis, um, Twin Shadow, all these bands, whatever. They, um, these musicians, they, they were basically getting opportunities to play a song at the end of a late night show and then the credits scroll over their face <laughs> and they weren't getting any chance to show their personality. But I knew some, some musicians that were really funny, even if their music wasn't funny. So I thought that we could start this focus of trying to get more music acts mm-hmm. to do videos. And so I consulted for a while and I ended up getting enough talent and making enough videos that did well that they hired me full time. That's great. I, I'm, I'm like, my mind is 
uh, swirling around the cold call to the CEO. <laughs> what was that like? And like, would you do something like that today? So basically like a friend of a, f- a, 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 not even a close family friend really, but like a, like a, a fr- family friend kind used to work with the CEO Okay, and was like, Hey, you should give, you know, give, like, I didn't know him at all. I'd never met him. I never emailed with him. Is it someone that he was like, I think I still have his number. Is it someone whose name we know? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, he, he runs, I think he works at Mandalay sports now. He oh. used to work at ESPN. Okay. Um, he's not, he's not like, he doesn't have like a comedy background. Got it. Um, so he worked at ESPN for a while and then he, now he works back in sports, but he was like a sports media guy mm. who had a, bre- uh, like a, 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 I don't know, was the CEO of Funny or Die for like eight years or something like that. And I just called him and he was like, I dropped like this, you know, mutual friend. He's like, oh yeah. And he was like, I got five minutes. What do you want? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right. So we started chatting and I guess he liked me enough that we, we stayed in contact and then, um, things just kind of went from, from there. And so I ended, I consulted for about nine months before I was hired as like a full-time staff producer and then worked my way up and I was there full time for three years. So in total, almost four years. Would you do something like that today? The reason I, and the reason I ask, um, I feel like I used to do stuff like that. Like I used to pursue, there'd be something I'm, I'm relating to your story. Like there'd be something I would want. I I come from, I used to write for magazines. So there'd be like, I want to write for, you know, Rolling Stone or people are like the top ones. I don't want to work. This is again, when I was like young and full of vigor, like, I don't want to work my way up. I just want to work for the, I want to go straight to the top. And I would like pursue them. And I actually did write for them. Um, and I feel like now I just, and I think it has to do with age, it has to do with point in my career, the fact that I have kids and stuff. Like I'm much more just like, if stuff comes to me, awesome. But that thing where I'm hustling, I don't have it as much. And certainly I not, not feel, phone call wise. Well, I feel like the only reason I did it is because I was really upset having moved across the country for a job that literally changed a focus. It's, it's honestly like if you went to work at, um, say you wanted to work with talent, like represent talent, right? Say you want to be a talent agent. Mm-hmm. Um, so you go and you get a job at CAA and you go move across the country to work at CAA and three months into your job, they're like, Hey, you know what? So we're moving away from the talent representation business. And instead we're going to sell cameras to the directors <laughs> that we used to represent. Right. Um, like so a total, like, sh- total great, pivot. You know, been, we're great working with you, Steven Spielberg, but we got these like Canon seven days that are just like top of the line brand. <laughs> I mean, that would be the brand of the camera, but um, yeah. it, just it, changing from sell working with talent to selling shit to the people that we were like trying to discover right. so a really big change and i was bummed about that yeah. and i didn't i just didn't want to do that and so i quit and and i i was really living off of, of savings and i i didn't have a lot of money and i basically gave you know made this deal with my parents where they were like you know you've got enough money to to, to live off of for a few months you know you know, maybe we'll help you out for a couple months, but like, you know, you, you give yourself seven months, eight months total, and then you're moving home. So it was like desperation happens. or it was like so gun to your desperation. head. It was, it was only because I had a hard out Yeah, where it was like December 31st, I, I, I didn't land something. Um, it's moving home, reevaluating life, moving back in with my parents. Yeah. And I'd already lived with my parents for a year, you know, in my, my brief year of rock stardom. So <laughs> I knew I didn't want to do that again. Nothing against my parents, but, um, I just, I was like, I got to try everything. Otherwise I, I know what is going to happen. If I leave, I know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. 
I might as well just go for broke. Like, who cares? Worst thing that could happen is I don't get it. But like, there's not gonna be repercussions because I'll be literally leaving the industry. Right. To go home. So it was honestly desperation and feeling like my back was up against the wall with a deadline that made me do that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have. That makes sense. Um, we have some questions that listeners sent in. I'm on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen is where you go. Um, all sorts of fun stuff, behind the scenes content. Uh, you can submit questions. You can see videos from the Thursday show. The, the video from this show, though, everyone can see, and that'll be on YouTube.com slash Allison Rosen. But uh, let's take some questions that people sent in on Patreon. And there's a song. When we ask, they send them in They're wondering how you have been So thanks so much for answering These questions from our fans All right. Amy Freehill says, Uh... I am working my way through Ben's book and and loving it. His writing style and explanations of what would be very difficult passages in the Constitution are broken out in an understandable and digestible format. I agree with his take that civics are not taught enough in school. Given the opportunity, what would what would recommend to part of a class syllabus for students? I think she means to say, what would you recommend? to part of a class syllabus for students, genuinely asking for my own educational purposes, being a 34 year old woman and realizing I don't know Dick about our government. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, I guess, you know, and uh, you know, this, this book I, I wrote for people in their twenties and thirties like me. I mean, I'm in my mid thirties and it's because we got, you know, that we got, we got fucked with civics education, like because of the incentives for reading and math, like our, our generations, like we got starved of this. Mm-hmm. And so we've graduated into, you know, being adults in our twenties and thirties, um, in the millennial and Gen Z generation. And like, we're the people who didn't get civics when we were younger because of these cuts. So, you know, there are some really great resources. I would say the first thing to do, um, it's awesome that you're reading the book. I'm grateful. That's, that's awesome. But I would say, first thing to do, and I talk about this at the end, is learn who your representatives are. And especially if you're like planning to stay wherever you are for the foreseeable future, because these are people who are going to be running your life. And know what the powers of those jobs are. So know who your governor is, know who your state legislators are, so your state senator, your state representative. Sometimes you could have more than one state representative. Um, you know, your members of the, the U.S. Senate, the, uh, the U.S. House, knowing who these people are and following them and then just, you know, reading about what the jobs are because the legislators are the, are the people who have the biggest effect on our lives. You know, the Supreme Court and the and the, the president at the federal level get a ton of attention, but according to this document, it is Congress that's supposed to run the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Constitution takes up, the, the first seven articles take up four pieces of parchment. The first two pieces are all about Congress. And articles two through seven are shoved into the second half. So, Congress is clearly supposed to be the driver of our government, but we learn that we have three co-equal branches of government that have checks and balances. But it's kind of a mistake the way we're taught this because co-equal is not the same as checks and balances. Mm -hmm. You can check something and you can balance something out, but that doesn't mean it's the power is distributed a third, a third, a third. Right. So Congress is designed to be way more powerful than the than the president or the um, the Supreme Court. And so I would say learning who your legislators are at the different levels is a great place to start to civically educate yourself. So knowing who your legislators are at the federal level in Congress, learning who your state 
representatives are, the people who make laws for your state, learning who are your county representatives are, if you, you know, if you have a county council, um, your, your city council, but learning the people in the legislative branch, because those are the, the people who make the laws and in the vast majority of cases have the most power in your life in government. Uh, Amy also wants to know, besides her stunning looks, what attracted him to Jackie? What makes them a good fit? <laughs> Jackie is one of the most kind and charismatic podcast hosts I have heard, besides Allison, of course. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> so Jackie and I were friends for about six years before we became involved. And we saw each other on a dating app. And I just had a birthday like two months earlier that Jackie came to. And then I saw her two months later on a dating app. I was like, that's weird. I didn't, I didn't see. I didn't know that she was single. Right. Um, and we decided to meet up. And then we kind of hit it off. And I, I really didn't. We were friendly. But it was sort of like in arms lately. I didn't know her that well. Mm-hmm. Like we'd we run into each other parties sometimes at the funnier die offices or, you know, and we met through a, a mutual friend, but we didn't know each other all that, all that well. And I learned all these things about her. I didn't know that she was this amazing. I had no idea that she was this amazing singer. Like she's an incredible singing voice. Um, I didn't really know her sense of humor and how funny she was and, and how, how unique she is. And it was like, the more we went out and hung out, the more like, like I would be peeling back layers and discovering new things. And she's just like a wonderful, exciting person to be around. (laughs) That's so sweet. Um, Okay. Sarah Park says, I was just thinking he would be a fabulous guest. I'm so excited. Ben will be on your show. Given how divided we've become along party lines. Does Ben see a massive shift in the two party system happening in the near term? I think it has to. Because where we're headed really is is we we've got, we've gone to such a hyperpartisan extent so quickly in the last ten years, and I I really blame two things for it. One is is just a fractured media environment in general, whereas you used to have you know these very centralized you know a few you know national radio stations and uh, uh, news sources on network news and and newspapers, but it really. Um, it's really changed because of, of the fragmenting of, of media and specifically social media and, and the, and the algorithms. And so the last 10 years, you've seen this huge shift. So I do think that something has to, to change. I don't see it happening necessarily at the federal level. Mm -hmm. I do think that what could help is that we get more involved in our state and local government, especially our local government, because a lot of these offices are, nonpartisan and i think what you know other than the 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 incorrect way we're taught the branches of government you know being equal when they're not um i also think that we're taught that the federal government does everything and and has all this power and reading this this book and or the constitution writing this book that is, is absolutely not the case like the federal government is pretty limited like it could only do certain things everything else is left up to the states and and to local governments you know which they call in the document the people so i do think you're seeing this renewed interest in offices that aren't even partisan like because of you know black lives matter um protests we're we're talking so much more about district attorneys and the power of district attorneys right. um and and sheriffs these aren't partisan offices in many cases these are nonpartisan offices but you want someone who is going to hold officers accountable for violating the laws they would anyone else in their district for violating the law and 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 seek justice uh you want someone who's going to manage uh law enforcement in your county um you know ethically and morally and so 
we're learning these new roles and a lot of them are nonpartisan. So I do think as a respite from sort of the, cause so little is getting done in Congress right now. And that's, that's not to blame, you know, Congress as a whole, like it is the house is doing a lot. The Senate's not is just confirming judges um, at the you know district circuit and, and Supreme level. But I do think that when there's such a gridlock and nothing's getting done at the federal level, it is kind of having this awakening for state and local government where we're learning that so much of our lives are governed not at the federal level, but at the state and local level, and certainly the things that affect our everyday life. And a lot of these offices are nonpartisan. Like There are some really key city council races and school board races in, in Los Angeles County and LA, uh, or Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles and um, LAUSD the school district, those are not partisan mm-hmm. offices. Um, so it's really interesting to, to see, you know, sort of this reinvigoration of, of state and, and really local offices that are not partisan, but um, focusing on that, you know, when you feel like it's too overwhelming at the federal level in terms of just, you know, gridlock partisanship. Right. Are you surprised that Trump hasn't been removed from office because I, as someone who does not have such a great understanding of the, or not the uh, understanding of the constitution that you have, just the average person, I'm just like, and excuse this extremely, you know, partisan statement, but like, why is no one in charge? What is going on? How is this happening? You know, like over and over and over, I have this reaction. Now I'm just like, okay, this thing is just going to play out however it plays out. But that has, I know that I'm not the only one feeling that way. You're not the only one feeling that way. And I've gotten this question a lot. And I would say there's, there's, the, there's sort of the, the surface answer and then there's like the under the surface answer. So the surface answer is he hasn't been removed from office because he hasn't been impeached. In rem- I mean, he was impeached, but he wasn't convicted by the Senate. Right. You need two thirds of senators to convict to remove a president. And, you know, with a, a 53-47 split, you know, getting to 67 senators, you, you need a big swing. So that was always an uphill battle and unlikely. But I think the question is, well, why wouldn't, given everything that's happened, why would they not remove Mm -hmm. him? Um, Because there are certainly things that he does that the traditional Republican Party wouldn't normally get behind. Like the way he talks about Russia um, is a a huge one. Um, You know, that I, I can't imagine, you know, and again, my mom worked in the Senate. She worked for a Republican in the Senate in the 70s and the 80s. Mm. And I could never imagine, you know, the Republican Party of the 70s and 80s going along with, um, uh, you know, like the lionizing of Russia during like no, you know, it's back in the, the Cold crazy. War. And yeah. even, even I think about the debates in 2012. And I remember when Mitt Romney said, you know, the greatest foreign policy threat today is Russia. They're, you know, moving back toward the Cold War. And, and Putin is, um, you know, you know he, he was a former member of the KGB and all this shit. And people just like laughed at him. He was totally right. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I don't agree with the guy on a lot, but like he was definitely right about this specific thing. Yeah. So I think that um, um, the reason that they haven't turned on Donald Trump is two reasons. One is because they're getting something out of having him as president. Yeah. And the other is because they're afraid. Afraid and of what? Losing that, their constituents? I think they're afraid of his supporters. Yeah. I think they. I, I think am the afraid of his like, supporters. <laughs> Right. And 
one thing is that Mitch McConnell in the Senate, he is obsessed with judges. That is, that, that is the longest lasting way that he can impact our federal government is by confirming judges who serve for life and not just the, th- the two, potentially three on the Supreme Court, but you know, dozens upon dozens of circuit judges, dozens upon dozens of, of district judges. Again, these are people who serve for life and a very small minority mm. of ca- federal cases will ever get to the Supreme Court. I mean, it's like, you know, a half a percent, if, if something like that. So 99.5% of cases are going to get decided at the circuit or the district level. And Mitch McConnell is getting all of his dream judicial nominations for all of these positions. He's confirming them at record paces. Um, so it's kind of this like grand bargain where he gets his judicial nominees that he can confirm and he'll, you know, not publicly attack the president or kind of let him do his, his thing. Right. And the other part of that is I think some Republicans are afraid to go against Trump in private. And I'm not, this isn't a guess that I'm making. This is something that um, I was at a, a event and uh, uh, for Adam Schiff a few years ago. Uh, who's a, a U.S. representative here in, in the Los Angeles area. And I asked him, it was right around um, a failed vote uh, in the wake of, um, I want to say, the Las Vegas shooting. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, it was either, a, a, a there was no vote or it was a failed vote. And I asked him, I was like, do people in the Republican Party genuinely not want any gun regulations whatsoever? do they believe this dogma or is this just a political position? Mm. And he said, I've had conversations, him speaking, he said, I've had conversations with a number of my Republican colleagues in the house. A lot of them believe in common sense gun reform, but they are terrified to come out and say that because they're at the time they're afraid of the NRA Yeah. because what the NRA will do is they will finance a primary opponent. They will put, spend, you know, millions of dollars on negative attack ads. Uh, they will whip, uh, you know, the most extreme supporters into a frenzy who could potentially threaten, you know, that representative's life. I mean, even again, somebody I do not agree with on almost anything. A guy named Dan Crenshaw is a, a, a congressman out of Texas. When he came out and said that he was entertaining or thinking of supporting red flag laws, which means confiscating firearms from people who have a history of domestic abuse, um, who have you know violent uh, uh, records and um, uh, or, or signs of, of 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 mental illness could potentially harm themselves or others, but he he entertained you know the idea of taking guns away from people who are domestic abusers, right? Which seems and like he a he was smart. Seems like it makes sense. He got excoriated from people in his own party. I mean, literally for months, if not more than that, if not a whole year, he was getting threats from people over his support of red flag laws. And it just goes to show you that, like, if you deviate a little bit, we've gotten to this place with, you know, media to the point where any sort of, you know, not towing the line on every issue, you're not just threatening your political career, you're threatening your well-being. You're, right. you're threatening the well-being of yourself and your family. I mean, people get death threats for this type of shit. Um, you know, when uh, it's insane. So it's it really is the point where, you know, we have such an ugly atmosphere in our media and, and, and especially, you know, sort of fringe, fringe media that creates this really sort of terrifying extremism in our politics. Mm -hmm. And so even if a a person is privately for that, they will not publicly support it because they don't want to a lose their job or b be threat, have their life threatened. 
it really is that bad. And I think we haven't really given it enough credence because... Um, right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go. When I hear you put it that way, I have empathy for the position they're in actually you know because i think most of the time i walk around going like oh these you know spineless sellouts da, da, da. but when it comes down to like they're risking their family's lives and well-being and all that like i i do get the position they're in well it's yeah and it's not every issue it's not like they you know they come out on like tax reform people are going to be threatening you know, it's certain issues right so it, you know and, and i would say um i would imagine it's guns and abortion guns is a pretty is a pretty extreme one um you know there are groups that will anyone who um deviates from you know a, a pro-life position um you know they'll just be uh, attack ads I and mean, they'll, they'll try to use you know super PACs to end their career basically and it's it's just we've gotten to this place where we're again getting to the root of issues like money has corrupted so yeah. much of our our campaigning um especially in the last decade it's just the fact that people can spend unlimited amounts of money creating ads for or against somebody you know you're at the mercy of just the richest person who can you know intimidate politicians to you know act a certain way what's your uh what do you feel like is going on with lindsey graham in what sense um it seems like he changed his mind about Trump. So it see, it feels like, does someone have something on him? What's going on? Or maybe he really did change his mind. Uh, I, uh, I have no inside knowledge of this situation, but I, I've heard it reported enough times in legitimate news outlets that he went on a golfing trip with Donald Trump and he came back white in the face and it totally changed his position after that and was a, a, a full-on supporter of Trump. So my theory, and this is not my theory, I've heard this expressed many times, is that uh, Trump does a lot of his sort of um, blackmailing uh, type politics on the golf course. Mm, he golfs a lot. He does. But he also goes with people because you're out in the open. You can't really run away. You got like a tiny, you know, cart. You can't like, you, you're kind of trapped in the, in not a lot, not a lot around you. Right. And he blackmails people. So Lindsey Graham, I, from what I understand, you know, again, has been in the Senate a long time. Um, you, you know, has always been a really conservative member policy-wise, um, hasn't been sort of this lunatic that he's kind of transformed <laughs> into. I mean, and I'm, I'm trying, you know, I, the book really is non, non-partisan. Look, I, I did grow up with like one parent who worked only for Republicans and another who worked for Democrats. So I, I have seen both sides of this and I'm not somebody who's just like anti-Republican, but I do see this change in Lindsey Graham where he did go from this sort of person who's willing to you know, buck the party trend to just being so pro Trump. And the only thing that makes sense other than some sort of like chemical change (laughs) is like thinking, I don't know, is, is, um, that he, that he's blackmailed. Right. And it's the only thing that explains this behavior where somebody had for the majority of their Senate career has been very conservative, but sort of behaved a certain way and then just changed their entire style of, 
politicking pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and he says, I think, you know, the Kavanaugh hearings really set him him off. But I don't know. Something is really strange. And I don't want to, you know, speculate about his uh, personal personal life life into specifics. I know we've all heard things that have gone around and trended. But, um, you know, I do think that from what I've seen of how the president conducts himself as an executive, not just as a politician, but as an executive, there is a mafia mentality to it. There is a blackmail mentality. I mean, he he came up in the real estate business, and you know, the in the seventies, like he associated with lots of mobsters. (laughs) Like that that is, he he came of age, he learned that sort of style of dirty business, and he has you know gotten where he is today. I think largely because of that, and I do think that blackmail plays you know into his um uh into his style, and so the only thing that makes sense to me for Lindsey Graham is is blackmail they've got something they've got a videotape or they've got some information Mm -hmm. on him that he thinks will end his political career or you know uh you know potentially bring personal harm to him um it's the only logical answer that i can think of for his like hard you know sharp change sort of almost out of nowhere wouldn't it be funny if it's just a video of him talking about supporting common sense gun laws (laughs) (laughs) um okay Whitney C. has a very, very personal question. What's his mm-hmm. current skincare routine? We have similar skin types. <sighs> Hi, Whitney. That's what she says. Um, she says if you, we have simi- yeah. you and she have if similar skin types. we have similar types. skin types. Okay. So I, am, I have oily skin and I am fair skinned. And I have actually had sort of a skin breakthrough recently, breakthrough recently, um, which is that my skin has totally changed. And it is because I am drinking eight times more water every day than I ever have in my entire life. I've suffered from acne since I was 14 years old. Uh, it's been a bane on my existence. It's given, you know, it's, it's, it's taken a mental health toll on me over the years. There was a, a period of time where I didn't even want to perform mm. or go out and socialize or get in front of a crowd and play music or do comedy or anything because I was self-conscious about my skin. And there were so many products that, you know, I'd have to do like, Accutane and all these other things that really were harsh drugs. Um, but no dermatologist ever said, hey, you're drinking an eighth of the amount of water that you're supposed to be drinking. It never came up. Was and your urine still, like honey yellow if you were only drinking a tiny bit of I water? I didn't even think about it. I yeah. just did. I, did I, I mean, maybe, but it wasn't even something I gave an out, like a thought to. Right. Um, so what I'm doing right now is I'm drinking like 90 ounces of water a day, you know, about, about half my, my body weight, maybe a little bit more. Um, and honestly, I attribute this to, to Jackie because she got this, this, this like, I don't know what it's with like a, a jar of water <laughs> that has the time. I'll, I'll show it to you. Here we are. Has the times of the day on. Oh. So like drink this much by seven, uh-huh. this much by, you know, nine, 11, one. And I space it out and I go through maybe, you know, three of those a day and my skin's totally different. Wow. Complete change. And I'm just doing like a little bit of over the, the counter stuff. So I do a little like Noxema salicylic acid in the morning. Just rinse my face. I don't wash it. Um, I put on, I will, I will promote one product that I'm obsessed with that Jackie introduced me to, the Berlin uh, Skin Cream Sandalwood Cream. Mm. It is an anti-inflammatory cream. Uh, it has changed my life. I love it. Um, and then I put on sunscreen every day. And then at night, uh, I do a little, like, if I have breakouts, like a little benzoyl peroxide spot treatment, but 
I have learned that the key to great skincare is not just what you put on your face. It's what you put in your body. And the best thing you can put in your body is water. So up your water intake, try to get half your body weight in water a day. I am blown away by how much it has changed my skin. Okay. Sarah Miller says, what's it like as someone who is not a podcaster dating someone who is knowing your life together is discussed? I, Jackie and I had a conversation early on in our relationship where I, you know, asked, I was like, like, you know, I'm going to start listening to Natural Like when I started to come up, she told me that if she wants me to hear an episode, she'll let me know. (laughs) She'll give me permission or she'll say to listen to it. But largely to sort of keep our personal life separate from the podcast, at least in my eyes, she has, she can say, say and do whatever she wants on the podcast, but on the episodes that she, she wants me to listen to, she will make me aware of and, and send to me or, or, or flag, um, or let me know. Or if I have friends that go on her, you know, close friends that go on her show, um, I will listen to it. But, um, she largely sort of has me not listen to it. But your feeling is she can say whatever. Yeah. Whatever she wants. I just, I just, I'm, you know, it, it's, it's fine. Like I, I, she can share details. It's, it's, it's part of the nature of podcasting. I think it enriches the relationship with your, with your listeners, mm-hmm. right? If you're, it, it exists on authenticity. So if you're holding back or, you know, editing, it's like editing yourself. I think it, 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 it tarnishes that like honesty and openness in that relationship. So I think, you know, whatever she wants to say with her listeners is fine. Like, if, I, I don't think she's out there saying mean stuff. So, <laughs> if, you know, if there are anecdotes or things that she brings into it, then, you know, it's fine with me. She'll say it to my <laughs> I agree with that 100%. When my um, now husband and I started dating, he and he's like now a regular on, on my podcast, so it's funny, his uh, evolution. But he was like, I just want you to know, like, I, I don't think I would ever be... By, and by the way, I hadn't even asked him, but he's like, I just want you to know, I don't think I would ever be comfortable like being interviewed on your podcast or like, I'm just not into that stuff. Like, I'm a private person. And there were even these conditions for what I could say about our relationship, which was like, I could say whatever I wanted, but he was like, I don't, but he, I was on the Adam Carolla show at the time and he was a listener to that show. And he's like, I just don't want to learn anything about our relationship via the show. Like he doesn't want to find out from listening that I was upset about X, Y, Z or da, da, da. You know, he wanted me to tell him first. So, which is fair, but I, it like, all of a sudden it felt like this weight on my soul where I would, would go to his place after the shows and I would be like, okay, I just have to like warn you that this came up and da da da. And then he would listen and invariably he'd be like, Oh, that was so much. That was nothing. Like I freaked him out by what I said because I had this nervous energy about it. And then he would listen and it was like nothing. And eventually he, we just got to a point where he's like, you know what? I, tr- I trust you. Just use your judgment, whatever. <laughs> and it was so yeah. much easier. So, yeah, I think yeah. The tr- it's like, if, you know, if I'm going to be spending my life with this person, like I would trust them to know, you know, where the line is. If there's something like really personal or, or super private, I, I would trust Jackie to, you know, to, to not share that. But as far as I'm concerned, she can say whatever she yeah. wants. How do you, this is not a question from a listener. I have one more question from a listener, but this is just a question from me. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about bringing Chooch into your life? 
I mean, what a blessing. I <laughs> have wanted to have a dog for a very long time. And my parents have always said that they're allergic. I think we're finding out recently that they may not be true. Oh, um, but I know liars. my brother is definitely. I know. Well, I I do think that they we they did. My dad would travel all the time, and and my my parents would travel a lot, and we travel as a family. So they they used the travel as an excuse to not have a dog. But I always wanted a dog. As far as I knew, I was the only member of our four person you know nuclear family that wasn't allergic so i was obsessed with my friends dogs mm-hmm. and i would go over to their houses to you know play with their video games and hang out with their dogs <laughs> the two things i was deprived of as a child um so i never really knew what dog ownership would be like um i have had i, I mean had gerbils that doesn't count i had uh i had fish when i was younger that that doesn't really count i did accidentally kidnap a cat once that i had for for two weeks i thought i was fostering a cat and it turned out the cat wasn't missing it was actually my neighbor's cat um, <laughs> and I gave it a home for two weeks um, by accident it's honestly not my fault the cat came up acted like she lived in the building I asked people in the building it didn't live there I saw a post on next door again maybe there are some good uses for next door if the people have the next door app good rule of thumb don't trust the first post you see about something on next door <laughs> so I saw a post about a cat uh, that was abandoned in the neighborhood because a family moved away. Oh. And so off of that information, I thought I would take it upon myself to adopt this cat. I named her Beverly oh. because she had to cross Beverly Boulevard to, to, to get here <laughs> from what I could tell from next door, which may not even have been true. Um, so I started taking care of her and I, I, I signed, uh, I got her like her, her shots and all this stuff. And I had her for about two weeks. And then after two weeks, um, this, uh, I get this, this message. I check next door on a whim and it's like, Hey, so we've been looking for our cat Yuki for two weeks. Uh, she's an orange tabby cat. If anybody's seen her. And I was like, Oh my God, I kidnapped these people. It was a very, it was a heavily outdoor cat. Uh, so, uh, a Beverly slash Yuki did not like being cooped up in my mm. apartment. Suddenly, uh, you know, her free reign, her, her, we're making it constitutional. I deprived her of her liberty without due process <laughs> of the law. And I felt really bad. Um, the family did get Yuki back. Um, but then they, then they said that she was misbehaving and did I want to keep her? They, then they offered her back to me later. And I was like, now this is sad. Like it was, it was, I was doing something great and now it got really silly. It's okay because the cat was safe and right. like and nothing bad happened to her. Like she had a, a home for two weeks, but now the, clearly these people are like, it wasn't just an outdoor cat. They're like negligent. Yeah. Like offering their cat. I feel like they didn't me. like her that so, much. That is sad. Yeah. So that made me sad. So we kind of had, I had kind of had a clean break with the situation. Like, you know, Beverly, like they have, this, this is their cat. I don't, I don't know what to do in this situation, right. but I want to bring it back to Chooch yeah. because Chooch is just become a, 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 a much closer member of the family than I ever could have imagined. And I feel like we have a special bond and relationship and we have our own games and um, <laughs> we, we get along great and she's just a wonderful, wonderful person. <laughs> you know, I had a, not nearly as, um, heartstring tuggy cat situation in my old place that I lived in in Hollywood these two women showed up at my door one day I'm surprised I answered it because I'm really not a door answering when I don't expect someone person but they they're like hey we're we're your neighbors um or we live in the neighborhood and our cat is missing and they seemed really sad and they were looking for her and they gave me the description of the cat and I took their numbers and then like sometime later 
I noticed the, a cat that fit the description in my backyard. And I was like, oh my God, it's this cat. Like they're going to be so happy because they're, and I texted them or one of them and, and she wrote back and she said that the cat has like turned feral. And, and so now she's just an outdoor cat, but thanks for letting her know. I'm a dog person, so I don't know how it works with cats, but like, does that, they, like, they couldn't make her an indoor cat again. So blah, blah, blah. It seemed weird. It was, your, your Yuki Beverly story reminds me of it. Like, is this, does this happen? It's like a quick switch for a cat, right? Yes. (laughs) It's like a Lindsey Graham style switch. Right. Who has what on this cat? Does that happen where cats just suddenly (laughs) decide? Cats are known for blackmailing. (laughs) Dogs are way more honest and upfront and like friendly about it. Even if we disagree on policy, we're still friends at the end of the day. Cats are backstabbing. I mean, maybe it's, but like if you own a dog, it's very binary. Like it is your dog. You don't just let it go. I mean, if you do like you're a bad person, Whereas with cats, it makes it seem like you just like you kind of own them, but they kind of also are there. They they own themselves. I don't know. I don't mean to get into a hacky cats versus dogs. I'm just saying it's weird the way these cats suddenly like weren't owned by their people anymore. Yeah. I don't know what's going on with with these L.A. cats. It seems very odd. Yeah. Listen, there was one more question, but we don't have time to get to it. And plus it, it involves guns. So I say we go out on this dog cat stuff. I think it's a great idea. Um, it was so nice having you on the show, Ben. Everyone go out and get OMG WTF does the Constitution. Sorry. Wait a minute. Oh, I said it wrong the first time and you didn't even correct me. I said, does the Constitution actually say that? But it's actually OMG WTF does the Constitution actually say Yes. So I had it wrong. I didn't even notice you. You, you mangled it. it. I mangled it. They're out there trying to buy a different book right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you like, like what you're hearing, please subscribe. Alice Rose is your new best friend. Listen to my other podcast, Childish, that I do with Greg Fitzsimmons. Um, Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. YouTube.com slash Allison Rosen. I'm on Cameo. Cameo.com slash Allison Rosen. And Ben, tell ev- plug everything you'd like to plug. Tell them where to find you. Um, well, uh, obviously the book. I'll also remind people that it's available in Spanish. If you have friends who speak Spanish and, and might be interested in the Constitution, there's a Spanish version. Uh, the Gerrymander Journal, if you want to write down your, your thoughts and ideas and grocery lists while learning about how fucked up gerrymandering is, that's available too. And then you know, if you have kids, next year there's going to be a kids version for ages 8 to 12. Oh, that's great. Uh, coming out next spring. Um, and then I'm on social media everywhere uh, at that Ben Sheehan. What did someone have Ben Sheehan? Someone did. Yeah. Some, uh, I think it's a, 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 a chef in New Zealand or something oh. like that. Some, or, or maybe an MMA fighter. There's some really out, outdoorsy, like working with their hands, Ben Sheehan on, <laughs> on the other side of the globe. So you're that um, one, the indoor one. I'm that Ben Sheehan, <laughs> not the Ben Sheehan. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate right, it. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Yeah, Allison Rosen is your new